0: it says obey the rulers who have authority over you only god can give authority to anyone and he puts these rulers in their places of power people who oppose the authorities are opposing what god has done and they will be punished rulers are a threat to evil people not to good people there is no need to be afraid of the authorities just do right and they will praise you for it after all They are God's servants, and it is their duty to help you. If you do something wrong, you ought to be afraid, because these rulers have the right to punish you. They are God's servants who punish criminals to show how angry God is. But you should obey the rulers because you know it is the right thing to do, and not just because of God's anger. You must also pay your taxes. The authorities are God's servants, and it is their duty to take care of these matters. Pay all that you owe, whether it is taxes and fees or respect and honor. Would you pay with me? Father, God, um, just thank you for the privilege of gathering in your name this morning and worshiping you and being able to celebrate mothers and um, just how you have placed them over us, Lord, as those that take care of us and lead us and guide us lord god and i just pray that you bless those mothers that have gathered today this morning in your name and i pray that you would also open our ears as we listen to the word and give brent wisdom as he shares in your name i pray
1: amen good morning am i on yet i turned myself on so all right so um, you guys, it is such an honor to be with you guys this morning, especially on Mother's Day. Um, and it was fun just being able to celebrate that with a little gift. Um, Kevin, uh, my name is Brent. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, I'm not normally the teaching pastor. Kevin is away celebrating his wife's mom's marriage this weekend out in Colorado. And so um, he and Jackie are out there celebrating Jackie's mom. And so. Um, I get to step in and, and share the word this morning. So as uh, Megan just shared, we are going to be in Romans 13, and um, it's it's going to be interesting. So from the get-go, I feel very inadequate to preach these seven verses. Um, one, because they're so instrumental and in a huge shift in, in just our mindset. It goes against American culture. It goes against who we are as as people that we submit. Um, But two, because like John Piper spent three sermons just on like half of this, (laughs) I, there's a lot here. And after listening to him and listening to some other people preach on it and reading a bunch of stuff, I'm just like, wow, I'm totally inadequate to share. So forgive me in advance um, if it's not as eloquent or as amazing as you hope or as thought-provoking as Kevin. Um, But yeah, so so the first part of this summer, we're going to be finishing up Romans, and then we're going to be doing some other stuff with the church. But before we even get into Romans 13, you have to understand where we're coming from. Um, so what comes before 13? Chapter what? 12. And then what comes before chapter 12? 11. And 1 through 10 before that. So you guys, 1 through 11 are like the bulk and meat. I'm on. So... I don't know. We're having technical dis- issues, and so hopefully we'll get that fixed. Um, 1 through 11 are like the bulk of the gospel, the good news of who Jesus is. The, 1 and 2 talk deeply about like our sin and how we've transgressed, and then we get to start hearing around 5 about what God has done, how— because we are all sinners and have fallen, Jesus has come and God has given us this amazing gift in salvation if we have faith in him. So 1 through 11 are just rich with with all this good stuff. Chapter 8, it's just promise after promise of God, the good things of God that God has promised for those who follow him. And so to understand 12 and 13, we have to understand 1 through 11 because 12 and 13 start talking about like what we do in response to 1 through 11. If we, you got to understand what God has done first and foremost before you know how to react to it. If you start reacting to God before you completely understand and sit in and grasp the gospel, it will become ritualistic, it will become jumping through hoops, just another religion that lacks meaning, that lacks devotion, that lacks passion and joy. And so today what I want to challenge you guys is know that the first 11 chapters are the hinge point of everything. You've got to get that first before we can even start talking about submission to authorities. Um yeah. So um So yeah, so you must know that God first loved. He so loved that he gave his son. He did this first. Only then does he ever ask anything from us. Only after he acts does he act for ask for us to react. Um so in reaction to the good news and in the light of what the Father has done, verse chapter 12 verses 1 and 2 kind of hinge there. So let's read that. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Don't be conformed to, the, to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So That therefore, in verse 1 here, is all of 1 through 11. Because of God's great mercies, because of the Holy Spirit praying for us, because of everything that God has given us, therefore, offer your bodies. Therefore, he starts going through verse 12, um, therefore, do all of these things. So, we're going to get into that. I'm getting a little out of order in my mind. So God calls us in chapter 13. It says, let us, it talks about submitting to authorities. Who here lives in society? Who here has like a driver's license? Social security card, credit card. Who here like knows a firefighter or a policeman? Like we live in this thing called society. So God has this opinion on how we as his chosen people live in society. There's two verses I wanted to bring up that basically highlight how we as Christians are to live. Um, If you can throw up for me uh, 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10. So this is basically well, how we're supposed to live. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were a people, you were not a people. Continue. But now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We are to be a people that represent the first 11 chapters of Romans, that represent the gospel, that willingly give up our bodies, give up ourselves as a spiritual act of worship to be Jesus's hands and feet, to be the royal priesthood, to be these people who passionately pursue God and in doing so, do all of these other things. Let's look at 2 Corinthians 5, 17. This is pretty fun. Um, so, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. So, again, we're talking about these first 11 verses, the gospel, everything that God has done. Later in, in 2 Corinthians, he says, We're new creations if we're in Christ. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. And then get this He gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ. God was reconciling the whole world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. So God has a very strong opinion on how we're supposed to live this life, how we're supposed to move every single day. And, but the thing is, is we can't do this without understanding chapters 1 through 11. This becomes ritualistic, becomes hard, becomes unbearable religiosity, pharisaical legalism, if we don't understand the grace and mercy and forgiveness and joy that Jesus brings in the gospel. So as we kind of chew on chapter 12 and and especially chapter 13 today, you have to know that all of 12 and 13, and even the rest of Romans, is in reaction to this, a calling to be this kind of people that God has set apart for his purpose, to be his image to the world around us. So with that in mind, Romans kind of shifts gears from the gospel to calling us to react. So Romans 12, 1 and 2, the therefore is that, and it it kind of sets in motion that first and foremost, we have to have a relationship right with God. So in this world, all everything we do boils down to relationships. In this earth, your relationship to God, your relationship to family, your relationship to coworkers, it's all boiled down to relationships. If you don't get that first one right, the vertical relationship with you and God, everything else is going to falter. Everything else is going to go wonky and and get out of whack. And so so God calls us to get that right first. How? By submitting our bodies as living sacrifices as a spiritual act of worship. And then in Romans, he starts going through, what do we do next? Second, use your gifts in the body of Christ, to serve the body of Christ, to build it up. And so verses three through eight, we're not gonna go into them. Kevin went into them a couple weeks ago. List seven different gifts that we as Christians are given to build up the body. And then it goes into blessing those around us, not just the ones that it's easy to love, not the ones who just love us back, but our enemies as well. The people who persecute us, the people who get on our very last nerve. We're called to be a blessing to them to pray for those who persecute us, to love without end. That's not easy. This calling is beyond us. This calling requires a Holy Spirit level of, of love that it, we can't get just by going through the motions and showing up at church and doing the right thing, because at some point, our reserve for doing the right thing is just gonna run dry, and we'll start doing the right thing for the wrong reasons. If our vertical relationship to God isn't right, everything we do will be wonky. Everything will be just done wrong for the wrong reasons, in the wrong direction, for the wrong purpose. And so that is the foundation for everything. So, Romans 13 it stops from just loving God and loving others and starts to, to flesh out some practical things and submitting to governing authorities. Um, so as an act of worship, we're supposed to submit to governing authorities. So let's read Romans 1 again. So it says this, let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority Except those that exist have been instituted by God. All right, so there's a lot to chew on there. So all authority comes from God. Every government that currently exists or previously existed comes from God. He set them up. And therefore... He is the one who disassembles them and throws them out of power. He is in complete control. He is sovereign. So this brings a lot of theological questions that we have to start unpacking. So does that mean that evil governments are set up by God? Does that mean Nazi Germany was appointed and set up by God? Does that mean Stalin's reign where he executed a ton of people was God-ordained government? What does that say about, like, ISIS and the Taliban or all of the craziness going on in the Middle East? Are those governments set up and sustained by God? Yes. Does that mean that everything they do is in line with what God wants them to do? No but God is sovereign. And so there's this tension here where we as human beings in our human scope don't and can't understand how big God is and how he can use and move things on the world board that are beyond our scope. Questions like, how can a good God let this happen start cropping up, and if we don't stop to address them and kind of wrestle with them and deal with them, that can really lead to a question of faith. So today, I'm hoping that we can start addressing some of these things. So where's Paul at when he's saying this? Who's he talking to? So Paul, most people believe that Romans was written about 55 AD, and he's in Corinth most likely when he writes it to Rome. He hasn't been there yet. He wants to visit. And about 5 years prior to this, the Caesar got sick of the Jews. We don't know exactly why, and he kicked all the Jews out of Rome. So, also, Rome is a harsh government. It's one of the most politically like crazy governments that we have in history. There's corruption, there's scandals, there's they're harsh, but then they also border on the line of not being too harsh so that people don't rebel. Like there's There's just a lot of weird stuff that happens in the Roman government. So he's writing to Christians who Rome is persecuting, the government is killing, and he says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. I'm thinking about the Christians that would be there, and they're probably like, where is this coming from, Paul? Like, what's going on here? Government's killing Christians. Government just kicked all the Jews, which means a lot of Christians, out of Rome. Why? The, The Roman government, the Caesars think that they are God, and so Jesus himself and Jesus being proclaimed is at complete odds with them saying that they're God. So there's a lot of Tension here and so, Paul is saying, submit. Why? Let's look. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. I'll continue reading. So, give us kind of. Const- uh, uh. Therefore. Whoever resists the authorities, resist what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So governments are set in place by God. God is sovereign, He puts them in place, but why would God allow corrupt governments to continue? I mean, does a corrupt government if everything's to bring God glory, does a corrupt government bring God glory? Is do we do we, even though we don't agree with the corrupt government, still have to submit? Like this is Paul's not making any any ways out for us to not submit to this government. So all in all, yes, but there's some implied things that go on here. And as we look at scripture, we can kind of see it. But does that mean God puts governments in place that are evil and can be evil? Yes. Let's look at some other examples in the Bible. So all throughout the scripture, even just back in Romans, a couple chapters, it talks about Pharaoh. And Pharaoh in Romans nine seventeen, 17, um, we can read that. It says, uh, for the scriptures say to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So Pharaoh was put into place, held all the Jews, all the Hebrews captive, and so that he, God, could display his power to the world around. Interesting. Interesting. Jeroboam was one of the most wicked kings in all of Israel. And 1 Kings 12, 15, it describes the intrigue that put him in there. Like, Basically, Jeroboam was one of Solomon's sons, and he kind of took 12 tribes and created the northern kingdom. And there was lots of civil strife that went on. And one of the first things he did was set up an altar <laughs> in their kingdom, not to God, but to Baal. And so, but even this, it describes... Um, that it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord. First King says it was brought about by the Lord. We think of Nebuchadnezzar. Um, he was a pagan Babylonian king who destroyed Jerusalem, sacked, raped, carried off, and abducted a whole bunch of children. And yet, God in Jeremiah 27, 6 says, now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. The same Word, my servant, is used in Romans 4 when he says all of these civil leaders, all of these government officials are my servants, ministers. He's a servant of God. He was a tyrant that spent a ton of time building up his own empire, but yet Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego all went into his kingdom, all got to share with him the greatness of God. And through interactions, all of the Babylonian Empire heard about the deeds of God. And later on, when, when um, the Medes kind of took over and King Cyrus sent the Jews back to rebuild Jerusalem, again, it was for God's glory, for his renown. And so, we think of Pilate. The ruler above all other rulers who did not reward good behavior. So, Verse here in Romans 13, it kind of talks about the rulers are not a terror to good conduct but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval. Not all governments give approval to those who do good. Pilate G- had Jesus in his grasp and basically knew that he was completely innocent. But there was another thing going on. The Jews basically said there's no king but Caesar, putting Caesar in contest with this Jewish king Jesus. And so Pilate's like, All right, you want him crucified? Crucify him. My hands are done with this, but okay, fine. And he even asked Jesus, Do you know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, you will have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. So even Jesus understood that God set all of these governments in place and had authority that was given to them to rule and reign, even if they did it corruptly. King Herod, (laughs) in Acts 12, this is an interesting thing. So there were lots of King Herods, but later on, one of the later King Herods, um, was persecuting Christians in Acts. And soon afterwards, some different events happen, and the Jews start chanting, uh, The voice of a God and not a man, the voice of a God and not a man. And Herod didn't stop and give glory to God, didn't stop them from praising him as a God. And instantaneously, God struck him down, and he was eaten by worms from the inside out and breathed his last breath. Crazy. But I mean, that shows that God is sovereign. He puts people in, in authority in place, and he completely takes people out. And then one not in the Bible, one that the scriptures don't really talk about, but I think about, and after looking at World War II stuff, is Hitler. I mean, 60 million people died during World War II. The most horrific thing that happened in our world, probably ever. And There's no denying that that was horrific. There's no saying that God wanted that to happen. But when you look back at it, I hear tons and tons of stories of how God's glory was seen, how men came to Christ. And more than anything, after World War II, for the first time in a long time, Israel had the ear of the whole, and the sympathy of the whole world, the inner, the, the, uh, all of the international people got together and and the United Nations said, hey, let's give them land. And so God set his kingdom in place for a later date and gave them land with boundaries and borders. Was it worth 60 million lives? I don't know. I'm not God. I'm not in a place where I can judge that. But looking at the big picture, I can see God working in and through every single human authority. And so who am I to question Does that mean that we submit completely and willingly to them? No. I don't really understand this. John Piper says it this way. Paul knew from Daniel 2.12, God removes kings and sets up kings, all kings. They are all under his control. He puts them in office and he takes them out of office. So the answer is yes, Romans 13:1 applies to all rulers, good and bad, for there's no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. This means that the Roman Christians and we today should learn that it is God's will to govern the world of mankind through human civil authorities. This is God's plan. Man did not create government. God did. Man does not sustain it. God does. Civil authority is God's idea in this age. Yes, we are not to conform to this age. Yes, many of the rulers, especially in Rome in that day, in China today, in Iran today, kill Christians Yes, they tax you and take your money, God's money, and do evil things with it, especially in, those, in North Korea and other oppressive regimes. Yes, your lifestyle should be merciful and not vengeful. Yes, they can exile you and make you leave Rome or anywhere else like the Caesar did with the Jews. And I say to you, civil authority is God's chosen instrument to govern the world of men, submit to it out of reverence for God, not reverence for the ruler. God has stripped rulers of their final authority. That's what verse one means. They are not God. God is God. When you submit, you submit for God's sake. 1 Peter two thirteen says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. And this Lord is the risen Lord Jesus, who is king of kings, to whom all authority in heaven and earth has been given to you. In other words, keeping the speed limit, is Christian worship. Stopping at stop signs is Christian worship. Submitting to your professor (laughs) is Christian worship. Submitting to your boss and doing things that your boss wants you to do within the realm of work is Christian worship. All of submission to authority over you, submitting to your parents. It's Mother's Day. When mom tells you to do something, submitting to mom is Christian worship. Does that mean you have to agree with your authorities every single time? No. But to submit and serve and in love makes a big difference. The Sermon on the Mount, Jesus ap- approached kind of the submission a lot of different ways. I didn't even put this in my notes, but turning the other cheek is a whole nother thing. Going the extra mile, it, it means a whole nother thing than just submission. It's going even more above and beyond to just submitting to what they've asked to do, to do more. Why? To show that you are willing, there's something different in you. You are part of that royal priesthood. You are different. You have been made to be God's hands and feet, his image to the world around you, and therefore you are submitting as an act of worship. So Romans 13.1 is hard for us, especially as individualistic American Christians to really think because from our hearts, the sin of our hearts says, no, I'm not gonna submit. No, I don't wanna do that. I don't wanna submit to anyone. I'm the Lord of my own life. But we know from Romans 1 through 11 that that can't be true. If we really get the gospel, we submit to God because he first loved us. And out of his love, we learn that we don't need to try to be Lord of our own life anymore. And because of that love and because of the freedom that that gives, we now, as an act of worship, give our bodies as as living sacrifices in Romans 12. And now, in Romans 13, we submit to our earthly authorities. So we do this for wrath's sake. (laughs) Let me reread verses 1 and 2, and then we're going to start moving on. So let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. What about when the ruling authority goes against what God commands? What about in China, where Hebrews tells us to not forsake assembling together as a body of believers? What about people who live in places where the government is directly opposed to what God has called us to do? I mean, Scripture's deal with that. If we look at Acts 5, Peter and John were commanded by the Sanhedrin not to continue preaching in the name of Jesus and not doing ministry, and they're like, what are we supposed to do? Do we obey God or do I obey you? We're going to continue to obey God. (laughs) Sorry. And what happens? They flog them, and they leave the Sanhedrin rejoicing. And God blesses and grows the Christian church from it. So Here's the other question. So they were punished. They submitted to authorities. And submitting to authorities may mean punishment if the authorities don't like what you're doing. As a Christian, in a world, in America, it's not as big of a deal. But in other places, if you go on a mission trip somewhere where where being a Christian is not allowed, by following Christ, you may have to submit to authorities, and that might mean jail time. Great. Prison ministry from the inside. Awesome. Cool. God has obviously led you there. That's exciting. That's the mindset that we as Christians have to, God, you're sovereign. Okay. I mean, Peter and John were just like, all right, we're going to do what you told us to do, God. And we're going to praise you in the midst of it. And we're going to trust that even though we're flogged and even though we're beaten, you will be glorified through it. And your name will, will grow. And people will come to know Christ. And come to know the freedom and the joy that being a follower of christ brings and by doing this and submitting even when it opposes even when submitting means i'm walking into a prison cell i submit to your authority okay arrest me (laughs) here you go i mean that's that's what submission kind of looks like so if you choose to disobey and do civil disobedience, you guys, here's the thing, you need to have this backing you up. There's a lot of questions. Our whole history as an American society, if you look at the Declaration of Independence, it kind of goes directly in conflict with Romans 13. Does that mean we shouldn't have broken apart from England? I don't know. But Thomas Jefferson and Ben Franklin were were humanistic deists. They didn't believe in God. So when they were talking about the declaration, it's, it's all about rights and entitlements as human beings to pursue life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, not about submitting to authority. Did that make a great nation for us to pursue all the things we want to do? Yeah. But was, was that in, in alignment with being a Christ follower? No. About a hundred years later, what happened? The Civil War happened. The whole point of the Civil War was the South were like, do we want to submit to the rules the Union is placing on us? Specifically slavery? And the bloodiest war in American history happened. A hundred years later, there's another civil disobedience called the Civil Rights Movement. Should, Should we submit to these horrible laws that say black and white people have to use separate facilities? No. Thankfully, people were willing to disobey civilly in a way that honored God, and some people not so much, but it brought about change. So, but the people that brought the most change, like Martin Luther King, stood on the truths here. They stood willing to go against the government for, because God was behind them, and they knew that God was with them, and even if they went to jail, even if they were persecuted, even if they lost their lives, they knew that that was the right thing to do. And so God used them mightily. And so if you choose to disobey, there's a whole other when should you, how should you civilly disobey. We're not getting into that today. There's none of time. That's a whole another thing. But if you choose to disobey, just know that you need to stand on the word of God and have that as your foundation. Otherwise, when you're sitting in a jail cell, you're going to really start to question why and how. And for good reason. So let's move on. Verse 3. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. So, Do you want to like the cops? (laughs) Don't speed. (laughs) Don't do bad things. Do you want to get along with your local politicians? Vote. Be a good citizen. Do you want to get along with the principal or the dean of the college or whoever? Be a good citizen. Be a good student. Submit to authority. And then you don't have to worry about it. You guys, I still have struggle speeding all the time. I will admit it. I'm in a hurry all the time. But when I'm speeding, I'm like constantly in fear of the cops catching me. When I am like relaxed and obeying, I'm just like, this is awesome. I see a cop, I'm like, ah, yes, there you go. Hey, buddy, how's it going? Have a good day. I'm not like automatically filled with fear. Do you want to, this is saying, do you want to have no fear? Then do good. Don't break the law. Then you don't have anything to worry about from from the, the government. So are there always governments that reward good deeds? Not necessarily. Um, I was, in my research, I was reading there was um, a town in Oregon that started really cracking down on three or four pedestrian sidewalks, like uh, crosswalks, um, and giving speed, like, tickets to anyone who wasn't stopping for pedestrians at crosswalks. And then they started pulling people over who were stopping at crosswalks. And people were so angry. Why did you pull me over? I stopped. And they wrote them a check from the government for $100. For like three or four days they did this and said, thank you so much for being a good citizen. Probably wasted a lot of good taxpayer money, but they got the point across (laughs) that you do wrong, you get punished. You do right, you get rewarded. And that's the way authority is supposed to work. God-ordained authority is supposed to work. It keeps things at bay. So if you don't want to fear the government, don't do bad stuff. Moving on to verse 4. For he is God's servant for your good. They're God's servant again. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath and evildoers. People in government are there to stop evil. <laughs> yes, democracy isn't a, a, fly, a, a flying example of, of how great we are as a human race that we can govern ourselves well. No, it is the exact opposite. It's because at the core of our human hearts, people are corrupt. <laughs> we, democracy works well because it keeps everyone in check by everyone else. I think America's great because we have democracy, but that's not because people are awesome and should reign forever. No, that's how corruption and and everything happens. And this is a whole other political side that I'm not going to get into. But the power of the government is there to be the sword so that we don't have to. Throughout the Middle Ages, government didn't exist very well. It was Everyone carried a sword. Everyone... (laughs) took an eye for an eye themselves. And it, was, it would have been, I would have hated to live in that mentality, to, to live in a place where in order to get justice, you had to seek it out yourself. There was a, about a year ago, um, a town just over the Mexican border that could not find a police chief. There were two warring gangs that were so powerful that they had killed every single police officer. One man finally stood up and said, okay, no one else is going to do this, I'll do it. The day he was elected, both gangs teamed up, shot up the police station, killed him. Mexican state police came in, and even the Mexican state police were held at bay because these two rival gangs kind of teamed up and said, we're the drug cartels. No one else is going to run the city but us. without governing authorities that are powerful enough to actually wield the sword and keep people in check, we as human beings would overrun each other with our own selfish ambitions and our own selfish desires. The government keeps people at bay, keeps evil at bay, and therefore we don't have to live by the sword because there's rules. What would it look like if Gainesville didn't have any stop signs? any red lights, any speed limits, just talking about traffic, not even talking about any other stuff, would you want to live here? Some of you are like, yeah, that'd be great, until you get in an accident every five minutes, until you literally have to put huge foam around your, your car just to protect you from idiots who aren't paying attention. Laws are put in place for our good, for our benefit. So the first four verses kinda talk about for wrath's sake, but then let's read five through seven. Therefore, one must be in subjugation not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. So for conscience sake, do you want to sleep well at night? You want to sleep good? Do good. There's this greater thing of of right and wrong. You want to feel good at the depths of your soul? Walk in goodness So that your own consciousness, your own conscience doesn't condemn you. And so, pay taxes. Don't spend all of your time and resources figuring out the loophole of not paying taxes. Just pay them. And then you'll move on and do other things. Don't speed. This is, I'm preaching to myself now. Submit to the authorities around you. And then you don't have to worry about things. Your own conscience will be clear. This will bring peace and take away fear. So Paul could have mentioned a million different things and examples, but he specifically brought taxes into the issue. Why does Paul go here? What's the deal here? I mean, so Rome had just kicked out the Jews. Rome was fighting wars on all fronts, using their tax money to do things that, most Christians didn't believe in, drafting their young men to be in their army, but he chose taxes as the big thing. And so I think we get this a little bit better. Paul, I think, is echoing Jesus. So let's turn back to Matthew 22, where Jesus is discussing the same thing. So I'll just read it from the screen. So, then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words, and they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us, then, what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test? You hypocrites, show me the coin for the tax. And they, pause, it's funny that Jesus didn't even have a coin to show them. Like, he didn't even have a coin, he had to ask for them to bring him a coin. So they brought him a denarii, and Jesus said to him, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. Then he said to him, therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard this, they marveled, and they left him and went away. Render to the government what the government is due. You guys, this one through four says that they're God's servants. They need money to operate as God's servants. Are they efficient? No. Could someone potentially do it better? Yes. Do we agree with everything they do? No. Do we think that they probably shouldn't have abortions? Yeah, like— if we believe strong about that, why not become a politician? why not fight? why not lobby for the laws to change not go bomb abortion clinics? that's not what God's calling us to do instead in submission we, we move forward and so render to government what the government is owed taxes, service even if like Israel requires all of their <laughs> men and women to serve Two years in the military. If that's what the government requires you to do, then then render to the government what the government requires. I love this because he uses the coin. In our instance, if we pulled out a dollar bill, whose face would be on the dollar bill? Whose face? It's on the dollar bill. George Washington. Who's George Washington? The first president, he's one of the ones who, like, established our whole, like, government. If we look at every other um, face on any other bills currently, they might be changing, but currently they're all government leaders, people who've established themselves as government leaders. And so in the same way today, it's give the government what's the government's money, God's money, our money, sure. But then he follows it with give God what God is owed. What is God owed? couple questions. What are we to render God that is already God's? Another thing, if the inscription in the picture on the coin or the money is someone in the government, what is made in God's image that God has asked us to render back to him? Ourselves, our bodies, so Jesus, without even realizing it, all the time I've seen that before, without even realizing it, is saying, yes, give to the government what the government is due. But more than that, give God what, what God is owed. Romans 12, 1 says, offer your bodies to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. You were made in God's image. You were called to be a royal priesthood. You, as followers of Christ, are designed to be the hands and feet, the image bearer of God to the world around you. So give to the government what the government is owed and give God what God is owed. And then all of this kind of ends for because of this, you also pay taxes for the authorities Our ministers of God attending to this very thing. And then... Verse seven, pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Two greatest commandments. Love God, love others. Jesus said all the law and prophets hang on these two things. So if we love God well, we get that right. We understand chapters one through 11 in the gospel and we live in it and we understand what it means to be one of God's holy ones. Then loving others is what 12 through 16 talks about. So how, what, are we, what do we owe other people around us? Yes, we owe others. We've been forgiven so much and we've been called to worship and our act of worship is, is completely and utterly to God. So we, we owe what we have been received, what we have received. So we've been given forgiveness from God. We've been given love that goes beyond anything. So when we're stepping out into the world, what do we owe those around us? Forgiveness, grace, love. So yes, submit to authorities. And then verse seven is calling us to do even more than that. Give to everyone what is owed to them. What are they owed? Yes, we live in a a society, and I especially struggle with this, of entitlement. I'm owed stuff. But the more we look at the gospel and the more we realize how big God is, the more we realize how small and insignificant we are and yet how loved and forgiven and valuable we are to him. How beloved we are. And when we start to realize that, God wants to change our perspective of the people around us to not just be entitled people who are there to serve us and serve our needs, but instead reverse it to owe them love in everything that we do. To live in debt to those around us, a debt of love, outdoing each other in honor, outdoing each other in service, outdoing each other in loving each other. John 13, says that by this you, they will know that you're my disciples, the love that you have for one another. All throughout the epistles, Paul challenges us to outdo each other in love for each other and love for the community around us. So what is it that God is calling us that we owe each other? We owe love to both our brothers and sisters in Christ, but then to the hurting world around us. And when they start receiving that love, from us reflecting what God has done in us to those around us, they have no choice but to respond wanting more. Because at the core of our hearts, we are all broken individuals in need of God and his forgiveness. And when we receive that forgiveness and love and mercy from other human beings, it's so different and so countercultural from everything else anyone who experiences that automatically turns. They might react differently. They might react completely abrupt and say, no, this is weird, this is wrong, I can't do this, this is different than anything I've ever felt before, I'm violently going to oppose it. But they're still reacting to it. Or they lean in and press in and say, wow, there's something different here. This guy submits even when that person is corrupt, even when it's hard, even when nothing seems to work, but yet there's something deeper. There's a purpose. There's a love. There's a calling on that person's life that I don't understand, but I want it. I want that level of drive and passion in my life. So you guys, What verse 7 is calling us to do, pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. We owe everyone around us everything that we've received from God. We owe to those. Now, can we easily give that? Apart from the Holy Spirit working in our own lives and us daily and moment by moment receiving that from God? No, I fail at this every day, multiple times a day. When I take my eyes and focus off of God and put it on, my, on myself, I snap at other people, I get angry and feisty and my needs become the forefront. But when, as Christians, we willingly submit and put our eyes back on the cross and put our eyes back on Jesus and accept all the things that he has given us, then the Holy Spirit supernaturally starts letting that ooze out of us. And as we submit to God and submit to our authorities and submit to wives submitting to husbands, husbands loving and submitting to wives and laying down their lives for their wives as Christ loved the church, as we submit to our bosses, as we submit to all the people in authority over us, things start changing. And when we do it out of the grace that we've received from God, people notice, and they realize that we are the royal priesthood, the one set apart. And their eyes are opened, and people meet Christ. So guys, this is the challenge today. So in summary, all authority is from God. The government is there for our good. The government bears the sword so that we don't have to But beneath all of it is this moral code, this calling of God to do right and good. And that can only happen when we're receiving that from him to then, out of the overflow of our hearts, give it to other people. I have a big problem with submission because if if I submit, then I'm no longer in control. But the more... I get to know Christ in the gospel, the more submission becomes easy, because God himself is sovereign, and God himself has proven time and time again that no matter what the costs, he and his grace is sufficient for everything. You guys, we're about to do communion, and, and every single week we do this, and um, I just want to preface it as saying saying like, this is for believers. This represents the, the body of Christ broken for us and the blood Christ spilled for us. And so if you're a believer, you are welcome to come to the table. If you're not, please don't. There's bread and food and stuff in the back. But this is to symbolize and to honor and to celebrate and worship what God has done through Christ Jesus to give us this ability and this salvation and the calling he's called us to be royal priests. Before you come to the table, my challenge is this. What is it that you need to submit to? God wants you first to submit to him but there's a lot of people in our lives that we owe forgiveness, that we owe love, that we've been holding on to for ourselves. And the Lord wants to do something in that. The Lord wants for us, as people called out, to be able to let go and let him move into those situations. So as we, as we do this, Sit in your chairs and let the Lord reveal that. Seek repentance and forgiveness and let him show you where in your life he wants to move in this time. Let me pray for us um, and then we'll continue to worship. Father, I thank you so much that you loved us enough to send your son that you first gave so that then we could understand what it means to be one who loves you and one who gets it, one who's called aside to be your image to the world around us. Father, I pray for my friends here and I pray for myself that that as we go this week, you would show us where we're not submitting to you, First and foremost, into the laws and the governance around us, where we need to just let go and let you move in. Father, forgive us and move in a mighty way today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.